Man, hey, if you've been with us, uh, we've been walking through this series, this study called His Story. And we've been looking at God's story, the greatest story ever told, the story of the Bible, seeing how it all fits together as one story, the story of God and his people reunited through Jesus. And we've been following this thing. And one of the tools we've been using to help us remember the timeline, everybody's favorite part of the service, is time to go over our emotions, all right? So we've got this top row. We've knocked it out so far. Oh, hey, hey now, sneak peek. All right, so ready? So we got the first one. You were with me. God, creation, fall, promise, flood, tower, and patriarchs. And that's where we are today. All right, we're looking at the patriarchs. God zooming in on this one nation, specific nation, Israel. Through that nation, all nations are going to be blessed on earth through Jesus. Okay, don't tell anybody. Now, we talk about Abraham, and when we think about Abraham, what do we typically think about, okay? We, we kind of put guys like Abraham up on a pedestal. He's the father of our faith, right? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. Right, you guys get the, yeah, left arm, right arm. Um, with the father of the faith, uh, this great man, we think of in heaven, he's probably in a house very close to God, right? Like we're out in the, the suburbs, uh, but where Abraham is right there. This is this holy man, this revered man, we said by even multiple religions in the world. Well, I hate to burst your happy bubble this morning, but Abraham was actually not that great of a dude. And we looked, we, last week we saw, man, Abraham, he throws Sarah under the bus. Like, he, he claims that she's not even his sister to protect himself, gives her up to be slept with by the Pharaoh, and then he does it again with King Abimelech. Now, wives, is that good husbandry? Take your laughter as a no. So, no, and, and then the same Abraham and Sarah both laugh in the face of God when, when he tells them, hey, you're going to have this kid when you're 100 years old. And actually, the, the name Isaac means laughter because they laughed at him. He said, that's ridiculous. And then and in the midst of this 25-year waiting period, Sarah gets restless and, and tells Abraham to sleep with her maidservant, Hagar, to see if they can get the promise accomplished that way. And they do, and then they have a son, and his name is, is Ishmael. At this point, this is a Jerry Springer show, right? We want the DNA test. Who is the father, right? Oh, no, you did eh, Jerry, Jerry. I don't know how we get to these places. Ishmael represents us doing things our way versus God's way. In Galatians chapter 4, uh, Paul tells us this. He says, the son of the slave wife, Ishmael from Hagar, was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife, Isaac from Sarah, was, God's, was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Instead of waiting on God to do things in his timing and in his way, Abraham and Sarah take matters into their own hands. Now, listen to me. Uh, I think this was with the best of intentions. God made this promise. They go, well, maybe, you know, this is, this is beyond Sarah's ability, so let's go through Hagar. But here's the problem. It was a culturally appropriate thing at the time. They would deal with childlessness in this manner. They, they would have either another wife or, or a maidservant, and they would, they would, they would take their heir through, through that line, through another woman. But listen, the culture does not set the standards. What, what do we succumb to in our culture and say it's okay when in God's eyes it's not? God's word is our standard, not Facebook, not, not Hollywood, not society around us. 
Just because everyone's doing it doesn't mean it's acceptable. God had specifically said it would be your own son, your own heir, through your own line. This is deliberate disobedience. He actually, even after Ishmael, names Sarah and Isaac as the two through whom the promise will come. But God does bless Ishmael. In Genesis 17, it says that Ishmael, like Isaac, will become a great nation. And, and Ishmael actually becomes the father of the Arab nations. In fact, the prophet Muhammad, the Islamic prophet, he says that their roots, the Muslim roots, actually trace back to Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Islamic faith. He's actually praised in the Quran for being a good prophet, and he's seen as their forefather. Now, Isaac and Ishmael didn't get along when they were young, right? You remember the story, Ishmael makes fun of Isaac, ticks Mama Bear off, and Sarah says, they're out of here, and kicks Hagar and Ishmael out of, the, out of the fold. And to this day, we'd be safe to say, Muslims and Jews don't play nice, right? We've had this controversy, this global controversy ever since. And this all stems from Abraham's lack of faith. Abraham trying to do things his way instead of God's way, and it reminds us that sin has massive massive consequences. So no, this story is not about Abraham and his greatness. This story, like all stories, is ultimately about God. As we read this famous story today in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, let's not focus on, on how good Abraham is, but how great our God is as he reveals himself in this story. Genesis chapter 21, um, he, he, we see that this finally comes through. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened where, when, at just the time God said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac, as they had been told. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded. Remember, this is important. He said, if, if you individuals want to be included in the blessings, the covenant blessings, then you must be circumcised. So Abraham is obeying through this symbol of the covenant. And then Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. 25 years later, God graciously, tenderly follows through on his promise like he always, always, always does. In 2008, a woman named Amkari Panwar became the oldest woman on record to ever have given birth. She was 70 years old in the nation of Israel. This is 2008, or I'm sorry, India. They gave birth, and it was interesting to note what she said. She said, at last, at last, we have a son, we have an heir very similar uh, to what Abraham had said. Now, not just having one child at 70, but having two children at 70. And I love the reactions here. The dad seems pretty excited. The mom, she... she <laughs> but even this, this was actually done through in vitro fertilization. It was not natural. They had the baby a month, the babies a month early, and they were born each two pounds, nine ounces. So we see what God did back in Abraham's day is something that today with all our technology, with all our medicine, we can't pull off. This is indeed a God-sized miracle in Genesis 21, being faithful to his promises. And imagine the joy of Abraham and Sarah, finally, 25 years of waiting. And our, and our child is here, and they throw this party. It talks about this big barbecue that they have. They have everyone over, and they're throwing this thing. And then Genesis 22 happens. And God says, hey, Abraham, yeah, God, you, you know your son. Yeah, I know my son, God. Thank you for him. Your only son, the son of promise, the son that after 25 years of waiting and hoping on pins and needles, I have miraculously provided to two people who were as good as dead. You remember him? Yes, God, kill him. 
Abraham's over 100. Maybe I'm hard of hearing here. What did he say? Chill him? Is he, was he warm? Pill him? Is he sick? What? No, kill him. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, yes, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac. Yes, that's the one I'm talking about. Whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Can you imagine what's going through Abraham's mind? And just because we're bumping up against it, is this God endorsing child sacrifice? Again, that was a common practice among the pagans at that time, but the culture is not the standard. We know that God later makes explicitly clear in his law that this is not acceptable in my sight. Deuteronomy 12, 31, you must not worship the Lord your God the way other nations worship him. I don't care what they do. For they perform for their gods every detestable act the Lord hates. Here's something the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. No, these children are in the Imago Dei. They are made in my image and they are valuable and you will not kill another human being as a sacrifice. So no, this is a once in history type of a thing and spoiler alert, he doesn't actually let him kill the child. This is not something God endorses. This is not the heart of God. But God believed that this process, taking Abraham through this heart-wrenching process, was worth it for the lesson he was going to teach him. So may we have ears to hear from the word of God what he's teaching Abraham that he might also teach us. They say, wait a second, wait a second. God promised, remember if we go back to our timeline, He promised in Genesis 3.15 that this seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That this promised deliverer, and then he gets more specific. He says, Abraham, it's going to be through your line, through your nation, every nation will be blessed. And then he actually says, it's going to be Isaac, through the descendants of Isaac, that this nation, the deliverer, is going to come. And so you say, wait a second, how can God keep his promise of the deliverer coming through the line of Isaac when he's also commanded Abraham to kill Isaac before he's had any children. What's Abraham supposed to do with that? Warren Wearsby says, Our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, to do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. God's asking Abraham not just to give up his own son, but to take his life from his own hand. I think that qualifies as unbearable. Does it seem unreasonable? Why would you ask me to do this, God? This is not in line with your heart, and it certainly seems impossible. I don't know how you're going to reconcile your promise with your command. But what I want to look at next is, man, Abraham's incredible faith-saturated promise in verse 3. It says, the next morning Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. Notice what's not between God's command in verse 2 and Abraham's response and action in verse 3. It doesn't say, and then Abraham complained to the Lord. It doesn't say, then he questioned God. That's what I would do. I don't know about you, but I would have a lot of questions for God before I just did that. I would be angry with God. I would be confused by God. I would be heartbroken. And I'd have a lot to say. But he just simply obeys. And over the last 25 years, God has been faithful to teach Abraham faith-saturated obedience. He says, I am a promise keeper. And Abraham, through trial and error, as we pointed out, Abraham's learned this lesson. Now, it's a 50-mile journey to Moriah, and they didn't jump in the Chevy, right? They didn't have a little puddle jumper. They'd take the next, you know, next flight over. This was on foot and on donkey. This is a three-day journey. And you imagine 
what's going on in Abraham's mind as the thoughts and the emotions are running through his body. This would be a living hell, knowing what's coming. I remember when I was going to college, uh, my mom drove me up from Ohio. We were visiting some of our relatives, and uh, Michigan was about three hours away. It was the longest three hours of my life. My mom was crying the entire way up, then she's crying at registration, then she's crying as the RA is taking us into the room. Finally, the RA looks at her and he goes, you know, it might just be better if you go. <laughs> it might be better for you, for him. The funny thing is that exact same scenario happened when I was in second grade, so some things just don't change. Um, and a lot of you have been saying goodbye to college kids. It's just recently been the Christmas break. Okay, a lot of tears, mostly because you know how much this is costing you, right? That's what that's coming from. Listen, it's, it's hard to let children go. I mean, even just a college for a semester. So you imagine the pain of a father's heart, what Abraham is experiencing in this moment. And this is from the hand of God. Verse 4, on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. The devil's in the details. Notice this. It says, we will worship there, and then who will come back? We. Now, did Abraham get confused? Has he been in the sand too much? Like, what? It, is it, I mean, Isaac's going to be sacrificed. It should be, we will worship there, and then I'm coming back, but Isaac isn't. So what's going on? How does Abraham reconcile God's promise and his command? Hebrews 11, once again, we've seen this throughout our story, gives us incredible insight. It says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. So he remembers the promise. It's specifically through Isaac. So how does he reckon this in his own brain? Verse 19 tells us. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, and we know the story, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. Now, this is crazy. Keep in mind, Abraham, as far as anything we have accounted for in Scripture, has never seen a resurrection, has never heard of a resurrection. We don't have any account of that up to this point. It's not like he, oh yeah, I saw that on Mythbusters, right? I totally get it. Like, this is not a problem. Abraham, I love, but what Abraham does here is he focuses on God's promise, not his explanations. He focuses on God's promise, not his explanations. He goes, I don't know how you're going to do this, God. I don't know how you're going to want to pull this off. I guess you'd have to bring him back to life. If I'm actually going to kill him, but he's still going to be able to have children, you just, I guess you'll bring him back from the dead. All he knows, he says, all I know is that my God is a promise keeper. And I'm going to leave the house up to him that's above my pay grade. And again, this is not something that Abraham was perfect in. This is something he's learned over time. Verse 6, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? I love this. Finally, Isaac's cluing in. Like, wait a second. Yes, my son? Yeah, he's doing some quick math here. We have the fire and we have the wood. The boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Doing a quick checklist here, just kind of looking at inventory. And uh, we don't actually have a sacrifice. And I love Abraham's response. He says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. God will provide. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac 
and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Now, we're not told how old Isaac is here. We know that he can walk. We know that he can talk. We know that he's old enough to carry wood up a mountain. So this is not just some helpless infant, okay? This is a boy transitioning into manhood, and I'm pretty sure that he could have put up a fight against his 100-plus-year-old father. No, you go on the altar, right? I mean, he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to take this lying down. But what this shows is not just Abraham's faithful obedience, but it's Isaac's willing submission to his father. And then God intervenes. And this is so beautiful. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. It's, it's the moment. This is crunch time. The knife is coming down on his only son. And, and right at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. Yeah, what? This better be good, right? This better be good news. He says, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. At just the right time, God intervenes. Did he pass the test? And why did God take Abraham through this object lesson? This seems so cruel. It seems so unnecessary. It seems barbaric. God's testing Abraham. Listen, God needs, God doesn't need to know something here. God doesn't need to learn something here. God knows it all. This is Abraham. Abraham needs to learn something. He needs to know something. And God is going to great lengths to teach him this. There is something that is more important to God in our lives than our comfort, than our entertainment, than our lack of going through trials. And he will do anything to teach us that lesson. And look at what he says. For now I know that you truly fear God. You hear that? In Ecclesiastes, remember last year we went through this cheery book, right? And, and Paul says, listen, everything under the sun is meaningless. I've tried it all. It's all meaningless. But at the very end, he says, we can sum it up. And there's one thing in this world that matters. There's one thing that's more important than any other thing. And he says it here in, 12, in verse 13. He goes, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands. Fear God and keep his commands. Why? Because this is your duty. This is your whole responsibility. The reason you were created was to fear me and obey me. The only thing that matters on earth, or the thing that I should say that matters above all on earth, is that we fear God and that we obey him. Nothing mattered more to God than Abraham fearing God and God alone and doing what God asked of him. God says, do you fear me most? Do you love me the most? Do, will you obey me? Will you trust me over everything else in your life? He wants to know if Abraham's faith, if Abraham's love is truly in God or simply in the promises that God made to him. And this is where we can often fall into the trap of confusing the gift and the givers. This is easy for all of us to do. Do I love God or do I simply love the things he gives me? And we may be tested. We may be tested in things very near and dear to us. We may be tested by him removing or injuring or altering family and friends or possessions or jobs or dreams and ambitions, our house, and anything in our life. And what a reminder that everything we have is on loan from the Lord. And we must learn to hold these things, these gifts, loosely because the Lord gives and he also takes away. 
And it may not be death. It may just, maybe something like letting a child move away. And one of the reasons my mom was so emotional at that time was because I was actually going to missionary training. And she thought at the age of 18, I was going to get married to my current, that then girlfriend, and that we were going to move to Papua New Guinea, right? Have a bunch of babies that she wouldn't see until they were graduated. Are we willing to let those things go? And, and she was, for the record. Are we willing to let those things go that are near and dear to us? Do we trust him or do we trust the treasures? Are we satisfied with him? Or do we say, give me the candy? But that's not the end of the story, is it? We look and we see God provides. It, it, God still demands from Abraham a, a sacrifice. He still demands worship as he is God and he is worthy and, 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 and must be worshiped. But look at what he does. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So there's a ram here caught by its horns, which we'll look at that in a second. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. This is actually a new name. First time we see it in scripture. It's actually the only time we see it in scripture. And it's a beautiful place to have it. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, he said the ram was caught by the horns, and this is significant, because listen, if, if God, God demands, when we come to him, he demands an unblemished, spotless, perfect sacrifice. And that's why I can't die for your sins. That's why you can't die for my sins. We're fellow sinners. We have our own payment. We can't pay for someone else. Someone's going to die in my place. They've got to be perfect. And the reason, when he was caught by these horns, see, the Levitical law clarifies the, the, the regulations for a sacrifice. It says in Leviticus 22, do not present an animal with defects because the Lord will not accept it on your behalf. You must not offer an animal that is blind, crippled, or injured, that which is bruised or crushed or broken or cut. Had this ram been caught by its body instead of its horns, it would have been bruised, it would have been cut, it would have been blemished, and it would not have been an acceptable sacrifice in the place of Isaac, God provided not just a sacrifice, but he provided a perfect sacrifice. Now, is this not just dripping with all sorts of gospel analogies? As Pastor Larry would say, that'll preach. That'll preach. One of the cool things about this is the place where he was, Mount Moriah. You actually forward, fast forward to Second Chronicles 3, and it says that's where Solomon actually built the temple. Where this unique sacrifice was, was made... All future sacrifices, once Israel settles down into the land of Canaan, are going to be made on this exact same spot. Now, there are some who would like to say this was actually where Golgotha was, where Jesus was crucified as well. Now, that would really preach, right? I mean, that's a one-to-one -one with this thing going on here. Most scholars don't really agree on that, and we don't get into the whys and hows, but maybe not the same place. We don't know. We'll leave it up to people who've studied a lot more than me. But the interesting thing here is that the Muslims, they actually tell this same story, but they use Ishmael as the one who was going to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. And there's been this, this, this dispute over here again, Abraham's sin going through Hagar, still causing controversy to this day. And actually where the Temple Mount is today is where the Dome of the Rock is, where a mosque is, a Muslim mosque. And you can see here right around it, right here on Moriah, there's a Muslim quarter and there's a Jewish quarter. Okay, they're having this holy stare-off with each other. They have been for years. This spot right here is one of the most perceived as one of the most holy and most controversial pieces of land in, in Israel and probably the world to this day. And we still see this on this very spot from Genesis 22. 
But you look at these analogies, and it's so beautiful. I just wanted to walk through these. Uh, In Genesis 22, it says Abraham offered his only son. The gospel says that God offered his only son. Of course, we know the verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now listen, God will never ask us to do something that he wouldn't also be willing to do. God knows exactly what Abraham was experiencing. He gave up what was most treasured for him, for us. Genesis 22, Isaac carried the wood up the mountain. And the gospel says Jesus carried the cross and he carried our burdens. And in fact, it says that, that Abraham laid the wood on top of Isaac. And Isaiah says, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Every wrong that we've done, every time we spat in God's face, everything that we've done that's evil and offensive to him, he's taken that and he's put it on Jesus on the altar. Isaac allowed himself to be bound, and the gospel says that Jesus offered himself voluntarily. And, and we got to understand this. In John 10, he says, no one can take my life from me. I created you, you little peons, right? You can't, you, you can't take me out. We didn't forcibly crucify Jesus. He says, I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down, and when I want to, and I also take it up again. No, this was Jesus' desire that he be killed for us, because he loves us. Genesis 22, Isaac was submissive to his father Abraham in the same way Jesus was submissive to his father. And we know the the words in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. He says, I don't want to die. I don't want to go through this. But there's something I want deeper, and that's to have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. But even deeper than that, I desire to do your will. There's nothing that gives me greater pleasure than being in communion with you and doing what you would ask me to do. So if this is your will, let it be. And then God provided. He provided a substitute. He provided a perfect ram in in Isaac's place, but he provided a substitute in our case. It's for us. Jesus is that substitute for us. And of course, it wasn't just any ram. It was an unblemished lamb caught by its horns, no cut or bruise. In the gospel, we see Jesus is perfect. Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 says, you were redeemed with what? The precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish and without defect. He's the perfect lamb of God. And then Isaac was reckoned dead for three days on that journey, three-day journey to Moriah. Abraham, as though his son was dead, walks him up the hill. And Jesus, of course, was in the tomb for three days, but that is not the end of either story. Isaac got back up off the altar. Isaac lived. And in a sense, Hebrews 11 says, it's as though he came back from the dead. And of course, we know our Savior, Jesus, who rose from the dead. Revelation 1, I am the living one. I was dead, past tense. I was dead, and now look, have eyes to see. I am alive forevermore. Our King Jesus, right now, today, sits on the throne, alive, interceding before the Father. He's not dead. He is alive. And in another way, we are Isaac. We're helplessly tied up in our sins, right? Romans 5 speaks to that. When we were utterly helpless, in the case of Isaac, it was not his fault. It was God's command. In our case, we're tied up by our own sins, by what we've done. But at just the right time, God interceded for Isaac. And here God says, stop. As the knife is raised, as our death sentence is dooming, he says, stop and behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. So some application and then we'll be done. How do we respond when God tests us? How do we respond? Maybe you've been through a trial or you're going through a trial or, or if not, I guarantee you it won't be long. 
How do we respond? I'll tell you, my initial reaction, my, my kind of gut level, and especially my fleshly response to that, is to focus on myself. Why me, Lord? Why me? Why are you doing this, right? How does this benefit me? Uh, what, what did I do to deserve this? How is this affecting me? And I immediately want to look at God and to, for him to give me explanations for why he's taking me through this. And God rarely offers us explanations, especially immediately. What we need to do is focus on God's promises and not his explanations. That's what Abraham did. That's what we're called to do, too, is say, I don't know how you're going to do it, God. I don't know if you're going to raise somebody from the dead. I don't know what kind of God-sized miracle you're about to perform. But what I know is that you keep your promises. So even in this pain, even in this confusion, I'm going to cling to you and your certain word. So one of these great promises that he makes to us is that he uses everything for good in the life of the believer. Every single thing he uses for good. So the question is, what is the greatest good? What is kind of underlying everything we go through? What's his ultimate good for us? Again, Warren Wearsby speaks to this. He says, the greatest thing that can happen as we experience the trials God sends is that we grow closer to our Father and become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, more than I'm concerned about your comforts, more than I'm, I'm concerned about you never going through difficult things, more than I'm concerned about your earthly success, more than I'm concerned about you being entertained, I want you to know me. And listen, he says, I want you to fear me most and love me the most. This is not God uh, being petty and being jealous that we might like someone else. This is God saying, what's best for you is to you, for you to know me. What glorifies me the most is for you to know me. And so under everything he's doing, he's ultimately working it to bring us closer to him and make us more like Jesus. That is the life of a believer and what we've been called to. The point of Abraham's testing and the point of our testing is that we might fear God alone, that we might obey him above all, that we might serve him alone, that we might know and desire him more than anything else on the planet. And he is sometimes, he says, the best way for me to test you in these things is to remove these things from you to show that you should treasure me more than my gifts. So if you would, if you close your eyes for me, we don't do this a lot, just that little heart check time here, don't worry, it's not going to get weird, but I want us to be able to focus and, and to be able to apply this to our lives, so I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I want you to, don't think about your neighbor's answers, what's God speaking to you on? First of all, do I value the gifts over the giver, or do I value the giver over the gifts? Are there gifts that God has given me that I'm treasuring more than him? Maybe it's your own children. Maybe it's your reputation. Maybe it's control over something. Maybe it's your possessions. I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. And in a, lot, a lot of times, a litmus test for this is how do I react when those things are taken away from me or threatened to be taken away from me? You don't have to go deep diving. If there's something there, the Spirit will reveal it. Do I value the giver over the gifts? Or do I value his gifts? more than him. Second question, do I trust the provider or do I trust his provisions? There's a lot of things, times God will give me something, give me a person in my life that I can talk to, give me something, a blessing, and I immediately want to grab it, I want to control it, and I want to trust that provision, and I go, but God, what if you take this person away from me? What if this thing goes away? What if I lose that? Am I trusting him or am I trusting the things that he's given me? And Abraham, first he tried to do things through his own flesh, right? And with Ishmael, it became a disaster. And the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning, am I trying to do things in my time frame? Is there something in your life today 
that you're trying to do on your timing, by your effort, in your way? Or am I waiting on the Lord for that? And his timing and his power and his will. And listen, all that God asks of us, he provides. That's why God, Abraham called him Jehovah Jireh. When God demands that we come into his presence, we're going to sing this song next. It says, come as you are. Come as you are. Even though I've demanded perfection, even though I've demanded an unblemished presence, you don't have that, so I'm going to provide it for you. God asks for it, and he provides in the person of Jesus. And and remember, this story is not about how great Abraham is. It's about how great God is. And Abraham's ability to believe and his ability to obey came from God's mighty power in him, not from his own strength. And so when God asks you to follow Jesus, when he asks you to be willing to surrender, to give up those things that he might be asking you to give up, it's not based on your own ability to believe him. It's not based on your own ability to trust him. The last question is, do we trust our God? Are we willing to surrender completely to him. And my fleshly heart says no. So God provides, and through his grace, he allows us to trust him more.